Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Who's Your Data podcast, in which we chat with geographer and data scientist Peter Lenz, head of data science at NIR, about geolocation data. What is it? How is it used? And what are some of the ethical concerns around it? We discuss how it's collected from cell phones to satellites, and we talk about the democratization of space and how accessible it's become for private enterprises to launch satellites. You can order a launch through Amazon. Who knew? Lastly, we get Peter's perspective on some interesting data-related topics that have been in the news lately. As always, Peter is a master storyteller and a veritable encyclopedia of information, so let's get to the interview. All right, hello, Peter, and welcome to Who's Your Data podcast. Hello, Galad. How are you? I am doing well. I'm very excited to talk to you because I think we have some really interesting topics to talk about. You being a geographer and a data scientist, I thought you would be a wonderful person to talk to about geolocation data, what that means, what that is, how we use it, what it means for society, and also kind of the latest trends around it. But before we get to that, as I said, you bill yourself as a geographer and a data scientist. Can you talk a little bit about your love for each and what kind of made them intersect for you? What was there an aha moment? Certainly. So thank you for having me on. This is literally my favorite subject in the world. So how did I end up here? Um, so I started out as a geographer. I studied geography and I studied urban planning and I worked in the urban planning field originally in private practice as a junior planner at a company. And I later went on to work for the National Park Service. Over time, I found myself doing less and less urban planning and more and more map making. I mean, I knew how to use GIS. A big part of my early career was Peter's the guy who knows how to use a GIS tool. Um, so we'll have him do it. As that went on, I found myself spending more and more time not even making the maps anymore, but now writing programs that made maps. Then this article came out in Harvard Business Review. Data scientist is the sexiest job of the 21st century. And I remember reading it and saying, I do all this shit. So I decided that I would rebrand myself from geographer to data scientist. That turned out to be very valuable because a lot of things that are today done in data science that are machine learning things Geography figured those out a long time ago because we've had to deal with lots and lots of data for a very long time. And a lot of the things that I learned as a geographer exist in data science, but with different names, or they are things that you can do. And that's been very valuable to me. It also is really useful because, and this is the secret of, of I believe, data science that a lot of people don't think about. All data is geographic data. It happened on the earth. Remember, data comes from people, data comes from animals, things that are on the earth are making the data. So there is always a geographic component to it. No matter what it is that you're doing, there's an element to it of where are you doing it? That is a geolocation aspect to that data. Absolutely. The other part of it is that, you know, spatial is special. There are rules behind it. The numbers aren't just numbers, which is something that I see a lot of data scientists make 
a mistake around. They say, this is latitude and longitude. You know, this is some continuous variable. I don't have to care about, care about it. It is not. The earth is round. I've been accused in the past of saying that way too many times, but it is something that people continuously forget. There are special rules about location data. They're real places. They're not just abstract values mm. that you can do things on. New York is a place. It's a discrete place, but it's represented with these continuous variables. That's something that's really hard for a lot of data scientists to get in their head. You also claim that you work to create big social science. Can you explain what that is and why you're interested in that? We live in an era of big science. Things like astrophysics, fundamental particle science depend on massive government projects, the Large Hadron Collider, the James Webb Space Telescope, big, expensive objects. In the social sciences, which I consider myself a social scientist, I am primarily interested in people. We have not really had big, expensive things outside censuses, which are our equivalent of that. We now live in a world where that is not true anymore. Society has built a massive data collection system that is always on, that tells us about what people are thinking, about where people are. And we call that the ad tech ecosystem. By accident, we have created the most advanced data collection system that has ever existed in social science. And we use it to put ads on people's phones for fractions of a penny. But we can use it for so much more. Peter, you are head of data science at NIR. Can you tell us a little bit about the company and what you what it does and what you do? Certainly. So NIR is the world's largest collector of human movement data. We bring in data sources from dozens. We bring in dozens of different data sources, clean them, harmonize them, and collect this data over time. Can you give an example of what what you mean by data sources? You don't have to be specific, but what types of data you, you ingest? NIR is the world's largest collector of human movement data. Human movement data is data that's collected from crowdsourced systems, typically cell phones, but we also have connected car data. We bring in data from credit cards. We bring in data from many different types of sources. We operate in effectively every country on earth. There are some that we don't trust as much as others, and there are some that we will not operate in for ethical reasons, but we basically have data everywhere. We bring it all together. We model this data so that we can understand the things that we don't see. Mm -hmm. These are all crowdsource systems, so you don't know what you don't know. As a data scientist, my team's job is figuring out, one, how to fight fraud and accurate data, and how to figure out those things that we don't know. So we can do things like how many people are in your supermarket on Tuesday at 9 a.m. So you get a sort of a holistic view about people's behavior, and then the things that you don't know, you model. Exactly. In fact, in some places where there are privacy rules, everything has to be modeled. We can't actually look in those places. So where there are privacy rules, we have to look at countries where we do have rights to use data and infer 
from remote sensing, things that are coming from satellites, for example, or from other data sources to make guesses of where we're going on. Try to respect the law in hundreds of countries at once. And so when we talk about geolocation data, as we said, it is a geo, it's a geographical component to everything that we do in terms of where we do it. How reliable has this data been? And when you use it, are there some things that you need to keep in mind and adjust for? One of the things that you mentioned as far as locations being real places, but, the, but what are the challenges of geospatial analytics of this data? The problems here can be multitude. There is a lot of really great, amazing spatial data that is out there, but there's also a lot of junk, not on purpose. People rarely are creating things to be bad on purpose. Instead, there's just people who out of innocent, not understanding this type of data, making mistakes. The amount of things that I see on a daily basis where latitude and longitude have been confused would confound you. There are so many maps, you take a look at them and effectively the earth has been rotated 90 degrees. It's not on purpose, people just made a simple mistake. Does that render that data useless or do you switch it back? So some of it will become useless. There's a difference in the scale of latitude and longitude and you can, by respecting the correct bounds, create data that falls off the earth. They're in impossible places. The problem is cell phones. This big data location system is ultimately driven by the cell phone. And we don't control the cell phone. The cell phone has been bought by a person. It has an operating system on it that they don't necessarily control, or in fact, don't at all control. It's controlled by Google or by Apple. But this large-scale human movement data can be very informative vis-a-vis important events that happen in our lives, such as, let's say, the the, uh, recent global pandemic. Did you see any effect of that in the data, and how did that materialize? So one of the things that I mentioned before that we figure out is estimated visitors. How many people are in a discrete location at a discrete time? When you look at March 2020, the world falls off a cliff. There's this generally rising count of people in all of these different commercial locations, and it goes boom, down to almost nothing, and then slowly crawls back up over time. So yeah, we can see people changing their behaviors. It's actually one of the things that's really hard about human movement data. Machine learning is ultimately the art of of being a data historian. Machine learning models have to look at what people have already done in the past to make predictions of what they're doing now and what they're going to do in the future. And when the pandemic came along, people's behaviors changed in a way that is not in the data. And every model went cuckoo bananas. This is not what is supposed to be happening because this is not what has happened. I've had discussions in the past around this being a black swan event that, of course, models could not anticipate. It's not just that they anticipate it. A lot of things that you see as data, that's real-time data, is actually being now casted. That is to say, it's a prediction of what's going on now. 
because we're not going to know what's happening now until the data collection is completed, possibly months or years from now. It's not so much predicting the future, it's predicting the now. Now is the future as far as a model is concerned. The future begins the moment its training data ends. You talked a little bit about the ethical challenges of working with spatial data. You mentioned that there are certain countries that perhaps have, you know, uh, stronger privacy laws, or maybe there are certain countries that, uh, ethically speaking, you don't want to collect data about. I wanted to talk more about that, even if you're thinking within the United States, just even recent events have brought up some ethical challenges, I think. Just for example, you know, with the overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade, and outlawing of abortions in some states, you know, could government pull your geolocation data and see that you visited a location known as an abortion clinic? Or, you know, do you find yourself grappling with those types of questions as well? Everyone who's working with data has to be grappling with these kinds of questions right now, whether it's geolocation data or not. Specifically at NEAR, yes, we are thinking about it. As in overall framework, we do not work with law enforcement. We do not work with national, that, that, those are in our rules. We will not work with those organizations okay. without a subpoena forcing us to do it. And we've never been, so that, that's not my immediate concern. What does concern us is that we have systems that let clients bring their own locations to us and put into our database how do we know what they are looking at? Sure, this says supermarket, but is this really a supermarket? So one of the things we've had to think about is how do you automate quality control? Let's call it that. How do you automate what a client is really doing inside your system? We're tracking millions and millions of locations. I mean, they can be as small as a couple of meters and, you know, they can be as large as France. What are the behaviors that are going on there? It's an imperfect system because it's humans and humans are imperfect. Coming from the ad tech, the digital advertising arena, we've had ethical guidelines around what we are willing and not willing to do. For example, when we've had requests to target schools. We don't do that, certainly not middle schools or elementary schools where children are 13 or under due to COPA laws. But we've also refused to do high schools where even though they are 18, it's just too close to that. You also have to ask yourself how many high schools are co-located with elementary schools. Exactly. They're usually very close. This is ultimately a spatial problem. How do I differentiate what's going on here? What happens when the high school's on the first floor and the elementary school's on the second floor? You know, issues such as government buildings, hospitals, clinics, as we've talked about, not only around Roe v. Wade, but in general, because then you are, if you're trying to target people who have been to those locations, there is a a really big ethical issue there of privacy. I think it definitely behooves the, the, the corporations to have an ethical standpoint about what they're willing and unwilling to do. And I'm, I'm certainly glad to hear that NIR does that. And, um, you know, we both know the distillery does that. The challenge here is that it's, while difficult to work with big data, it's a mechanical issue. And that makes it easier to solve than an ethical issue. An ethical issue is ultimately one that you have to 
tackle as a person as opposed to something that can be solved in code. Data scientists are mechanistic people. We figure out how to do things and figuring out why to do things is a hell of a lot harder. So Peter, one of the use cases that we've discussed on this podcast for spatial data has to do with remote sensing that's done through satellites. And this has become sort of an alternative to surveying that was once done on the ground, right? But now you can do it at a bigger scale. You have measurement of anything from topography, water depth, vast expanses of terrain. And a lot of this uh, type of geospatial and other data used to be collected by governments through satellites, through airplanes. Um, And so they had sole access to this data, which they may share or may not. But this has changed in recent years. Can you discuss how that's come about? In the late 1700s, the Montgolfier brothers have just launched the first balloon. And what the hell are people doing up in that balloon? Well, they're having meals and they're going, hey, look at me, I'm in a balloon. I'm an influencer of the 17th century. But they're also looking back at the earth because the best place to look at the earth is not on the earth. Militaries are the first who really take advantage of this. They put scouts up on their balloons and they start taking sketches and they figure out what's going on in the battlefields. You know, Napoleon has a balloon corps. There's a balloon corps during the Civil War here in the U.S. People are beginning to actually think about the earth and mapping in a very different way than they used to before. Very shortly after this, photography becomes a thing. And we get our first real mass remote sensing. People take cameras and they tie them onto kites and they fly the kites. And the camera has a little timer and it takes a picture. And then artists would take that picture and they would draw your town. So you are a brand new town in Missouri and you want to create like a postcard or something saying, look at our town. We're growing so fast. Well, if you take a look at those postcards, which is an entire genre of uh, 19th century art, they're all taken from seemingly impossible angles that are up in the air. They're being taken and then drawing out what was going on. That's remote sensing. Planes come along, makes it a lot easier to take photographs. Uh, Again, militaries are the first who take advantage of this for scouting during World War I. Fast forward, it's now the 1950s, spy satellites come along. And they're basically airplanes, but really high up. The very first ones actually are still using film. They're taking their pictures on very specific locations And then they're dropping capsules back through the atmosphere and they're being picked up by airplanes midair with these things that are called trapeze. And they're catching these capsules. They're literally still filmed, but they're targeting really specific locations. This is not wide scale data collection. That needs to wait a few more years. 1972, Landsat-1 is launched. It's a modified meteorological satellite. They've taken a satellite that's supposed to be looking at the atmosphere and we said, we're going to look a little farther down and we're actually going to look at the land underneath that atmosphere. It's going to look in infrared. It's actually going to look in a bunch of different bands, but primarily in infrared. Why? Clouds. Most of the time, most of the earth is covered in clouds. If you you were to take a photograph of the earth and average it, it would be pale gray. 
because there's all those clouds getting in the way. Mm-hmm. So it's going to look at infrared and it's going to look at what's going on in the earth. And instead of the spy satellites, which are looking at these very specific locations in extremely high detail, this is going to look everywhere at relatively low detail. And Landsat 1 is a fundamental change in the way that we think about data collection. Before this, a map was a thing that's on paper. There are maps that are taking a look at demographics. They're all hand-drawn still. But now we have digital data about what's going on on the earth and it's constantly updating. We have gone through multiple rounds of Landsat. Landsat 9 just came online in January of 2022 and they're all cranking out lots of data and the price has dropped. In the beginning, to get that Landsat data, you had to right away and you had to pay for what they call the scene, which is a single image of the earth at a single time. You would pay that and you would get it on magnetic tape. By the time I was looking at this data in the early 2000s, you'd get it on a hard drive. Nowadays, it's free and you can get all of it. But there's only a couple of these satellites in orbit at any one time. But there's this other thing that's come along in the last 20 years that's changed things. Once upon a time, you had to pay lots of money to get this data. But now things have gone back to the way that they used to be. Used to be, if you had a balloon, if you had a kite, if you had an airplane, you could collect lots of data. And then there was this middle period where governments had to rule it because launching a satellite requires a metric boatload of money. But now it doesn't. We have this thing that's called the small sat or CubeSat. Technically, a CubeSat is... There's this ranking order of satellites. They start out at bonkers huge. That would be something like the James Webb telescope or GPS satellite that's roughly the size of a bus. Small sats start roughly 1,200 kilograms. We're talking smaller. A CubeSat starts out at 1U. So that U, by the way, is a really interesting story. So... CubeSats first thought up at Stanford right around 2000, and they're looking for a cheap thing to be the box that they do their experiments in. Where do they get lots of different cheap boxes that are consistently sized, right? Beanie Babies are a thing at this point. So CubeSats are measured in U's, and those U's are the size of a Beanie Baby. Because they were originally Beanie Baby collectible boxes. Well, I'm glad to hear that Beanie Babies have such a uh, important contribution to science. Critically important part of science is the Beanie Baby collectible box. So a 1U satellite, CubeSat, it's about two kilograms. So these tiny satellites now are deployed not just by the government. Primarily not by the government, in fact. Government can afford big, fancy satellites that stay in space for a long time, have lots of instruments. Government has a whole ecosystem for building satellites. So now every company can have a satellite up in space. If you have, let's call it $200,000, you can launch a satellite. Well, that's a scary thought. It's a scary and a wonderful thought. I guess if you if you hold back on the donuts and the coffee 
and the snacks, you could kind of rustle up the kind of money to put a satellite into space. In fact, there are high schools that have now launched their own satellite. Uh, these were originally thought up for academics for building research satellites that would test new experimental things that would go into big sats. We're talking about the democratization of space in a way where now it's available for everybody from high schools to colleges to private companies, whereas in the past it was the sole purview of government organizations such as NASA. What does that mean for us as consumers and what does it mean for our data that we live and create and consume? So first off, space is cool. This is just cool. People are building satellites in their basement. Two, as scientists, it means we can ask questions that we couldn't ask before. It costs a lot of money to launch a big sat. And that means that your research project, if you want to put a sensor in space, has to go through blah, blah, blah committees and you've got to write proposals and it's going to take you over a decade to get there. If you get there, which you probably will not, or you can launch a small sat and a cube sat, couple U units, you know, a one U, if one U is going to cost you around $200,000 for both the satellite and the launch, you can do things that become throwaways, that become things just for you. Because remember, it's not just getting into space. It's also your orbit. Different orbits get used for different things. So maybe your sensor needs to be on what's called a sun-following orbit. So a lot of, a lot of things that go into space they follow orbits that are efficient for fuel usage. But if you want to look at the Earth, you often want to put it into different kinds of orbits. If you're looking at IR, you don't care where the sun is because you're not looking in the visible, visible spectrum. But if you're looking at the visible spectrum, you care a lot about the sun. Different positions relative to the sun let you measure different things. If you're in a orbit that brings you consistently over the Earth at dawn or dusk, you can measure shadows and you can say how tall things are. So one thing that's been done in the financial industry is to take a look at mines and measure how tall are the tailing piles. And mm -hmm. now I can say how much dirt is literally getting dug out of the ground by this mine in a day or between in a day. You can have rapid observation. So if you have one satellite, it might be weeks or months before you go over a location again and have a clear sky. But if you have a fleet of CubeSats that are all flying one behind the other in an orbit, it might only be a few hours before you get an observation again. So this actually was just in the news last week from recording time. Uh, there was a assault launched by Ukraine against a Russian base. Mm -hmm. The Russians said, oh, it's just a flesh wound. And then Planet Labs, which is a company that observes the Earth using CubeSats, flew a satellite over and said, oh, hey, there's a lot of damage here. Multiple aircraft have been blown up. There are damaged buildings. That is something you would not know unless you had lots of eyes in the sky. Sure. So Planet Labs brought the receipts. Yes. But what are the negative ramifications of that? Is there any way to regulate or any way to restrict because one would imagine that can also be used for nefarious reasons certainly 
So it's ultimately up to the users of this data, what they're doing. It's difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. Once this data is out there, it's out there. So yes, there are potential nefarious uses of this. You can see things all over the earth all the time now. One usage that's actually been used that people are not too fond of during the uh, pandemic, lots of people have built pools in their backyards. And now your local tax assessor can go buy imagery of your house and even though that pool is well hidden in the backyard behind a gate that can't be opened, they can't see it from the ground. You cannot hide from the eye in the sky. I think what to me is scary in this is that it's just there are a lot of I wouldn't call it unintended consequences, but there are a lot of unknown unknowns in terms of how this can actually get used and what the effect will be, the ramifications on everyday life. I would say, though, that's true of all data. Anything Very that we collected, we do not know what the not what the second and third order Amen to that. going to be. Amen to that. Would we end up with something like space as a service as a business model where in fact, you can order that in Amazon Web Services right now? What a satellite? Yeah, go to AWS. Oh my god, let's do it. Into it. You can in fact already get satellite operation services as a service in AWS, they will operate your satellite downlink for you. Space already is a service. What question can we ask to launch a satellite? Okay, so you gotta do a couple of things. First thing you do need to do is you need to secure a launch berth. You're gonna say, wait a minute, I don't have a satellite yet. What is that, $100,000? It's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> Most CubeSats are not launched by themselves. They go up in what's called a ride share. So there is a big project that's being launched by one of those legacy big government agencies and their satellite is not using up all of the space in the launch vehicle. So they will allow 10 CubeSats to go along with them. So it's basically Uberpool for satellites. It's exactly that, except when you take that Uberpool if you have a car accident, they don't blow you up. <laughs> okay. That's so fair. that will literally happen. You are a secondary payload. If anything goes on to endanger the primary payload, they will 86 you in a millisecond and you will be forgotten about to put the main sat into orbit. Given that we're talking about space already space as a service already being a business model and so many of these cubesats being launched looking at us and following us everywhere that means there's got to be a ton of hardware just floating around in space around us what are the dangers of having so many satellites up in space so this is called kessler syndrome Kessler syndrome is the idea that there are lots of things floating around in space and if they bang into each other, they are going to start sending out more debris. There are already tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of little tiny pieces floating around the earth. Launching more things inherently makes that more dangerous. The way that that's attempted to be mitigated with CubeSats is that they're launched only into low Earth orbit. So that means your CubeSat is only going to last 
a year, maybe 18 months, possibly a lot less. When they come down, though, where are they coming down? Do they know where they're coming down or are they just like plop? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Big sats have a place where they come down. It's called Point Nemo. It is the actually in geographer terms, it is the pole of inaccessibility. It's the point on the planet Earth that is farthest away from any human settlements. It's in the South Pacific Ocean. It's where we crash big ass things from space on purpose. I assume it's probably also the place where Godzilla will one day form. If you're a small sat, remember this. You're a couple of kilograms. You don't have maneuvering jets on board. You're going to come in where you're going to come in. The saving grace is they're all tiny. They're going to burn up, or at least they should okay. burn up in the atmosphere before they hit you. That is a little bit more comforting. You have managed to, at the same time, excite me, confuse me, and scare me. Well, and as anybody who knows our conversations over the years knows that this is pretty much par for the course any discussion that we have as we're coming to the end of our of our discussion i have a little bit of a lightning round for you i'm going to ask you i'm going to i'm going to bring up a couple of things that are that i've read in the news and i want to hear your opinion about them first thing that comes to your mind so the first thing that i read that was uh, amazon buying irobot this is the cumulation of a long process for amazon amazon wants to get inside your home iRobot through the Roomba is already inside your home with a machine that is designed to map it out and figure out its layout. Their Alexa can only talk to you, but presumably in the future, an iRobot can drive up to your Alexa-enabled door and open it for the Amazon delivery man who will walk in and drop the package off in your house. You were talking about things that were scary and exciting. That is scary and exciting. How far away are we from the Roomba becoming self-aware and becoming our rightful uh, overlord masters? (laughs) Amazon is probably already there. I'm sure they have prototypes. I'm certain that they do. That said, if you're talking about artificial general intelligence, I am a naysayer. I don't think that we will get artificial human level modeling in, a, in my lifetime. I don't. I agree with that. I actually agree with that too. Um, all right. Sorry, VCs. Have you heard of a show called Ring Nation? Oh, God, yes. This is a show that features videos taken by Ring doorbells, which are smart doorbells. Um, they're video doorbells and smartphone cameras. Amazon, by the way, owns both the production company and the Ring doorbell itself. Amazon owns everything. It does, and it certainly will. What do you think about this? Uh, this thing scares me, too. On one hand, I do love stupid YouTube videos. Sure. But I like stupid YouTube videos that are submitted by people voluntarily, not involuntarily. Sorry, not sorry here, Amazon. This is creepy. It is creepy. I will say, I think that just like, look, at the end of the day, when you look at shows like Judge Judy and Cash Cab and and all of those people sign waivers. And, and as much as it looks as if it's, uh, you know, and cheaters, people will end up having to sign waivers and allow themselves to be shown on TV. And I'm assuming it's the same 
Um, you know, nobody will be surprised by the fact that they show up on these shows. That said, I think it normalizes the use of privacy problematic media for entertainment. And so I think that it just jades us even more. It's a question that keeps coming up and I don't think we have a good answer to yet as a society or as data scientists, who owns the data? The people who create it or the people who collect it? Very good, very good question that is worthy probably of a whole other uh, episode. And last but not least, Meta's new BlenderBot 3 AI chatbot turned racist really quickly and spouted anti-Semitic conspiracy theories just after speaking to the public on the internet. Have you been on the internet lately? Yes, it's a cesspool of crap, especially Twitter. You learned this day one of model making, garbage in, garbage out. I, I have worked with a lot of NLP projects over the years. There was actually a major problem in NLP. All of the algorithms, GPT-3 or BIRD or whatever you want there, depend on gobsmackingly large amounts of data. And that means you cannot be picky. So when I train a model and it's got a couple hundred thousand things, I can be really, really picky about what training data I want. When you need petabytes of training data, you just get data. Yeah. And there's a lot of really bad data. Horrific data out there. So of course it's going to be racist. Of course, I saw a thing where it um, it has a very bad opinion of, of uh, uh, Zuckerberg. It badmouths him as a CEO because it saw people doing that on the internet. Well, that's the one thing I would say maybe it finally did get some intelligence, but I guess you're right. The yes. things that we are building today, they they are they are not even as smart as my nine month old. They are. No, they're very. They're very specifically task-driven. That's when they're good. Yes. And it worries me when I see things about people claiming that artificial intelligence is going to solve all of our problems. They are not going to solve all of our problems. They are tools, and that's it. Peter, this has been a, like I said, fascinating and scary conversation, which is the least of what I expect from a conversation with you. So thank you so, so much for uh, coming to the podcast. You're welcome. It's always wonderful to talk to you, Galad. I'm, for those at home, Galad and I used to sit next to each other, and this is what would happen every single day. Endlessly. Endlessly. By the way, also, Peter, it's, it's worth noting that you are one of a very small number of straight white men who have been guests on my podcast. So how does it feel to be a diversity guest? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel that whatever I answer this to, I am in trouble. <laughs> you probably are in trouble. So we'll leave it at that. I'm glad to be an ally. Amen. And always have been. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?